1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: I think there's a lot of room within Vasanar to really be very clear about surveillance technologies not only that have, you know, a national security use and thus a kind of impact on national security, but also have a potential for abuse of human rights in a domestic sense.
1: I'm Stephanie Pellin. This is the Lawfare Podcast, November 24th, 2021. On November 3rd, the Commerce Department added four foreign companies to what is often referred to as the Entity List for engaging in activities that are contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the United States. One of those additions was the Israeli company NSO Group, which sells software, often called spyware, that once remotely installed on a phone can steal things like passwords, photos, communications, and web searches. It can also activate cameras and microphones without the knowledge of the user. Companies placed on the entities list are subject to US government licensing and sanctions requirements. The NSO group was added to the list based on evidence that it developed and supplied spyware to foreign governments that use these tools to target government officials, journalists, activists, academics, and embassy workers. To talk about the global spyware problem, I sat down with David Kay, a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. In this former role, he produced a report that called for a moratorium on the sale and transfer of spyware. We discuss the nature of the global spyware problem, what might be done to address it, and the important role both civil society groups and journalists have played in exposing it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 24th. David Kay on how we address the global spyware problem. This podcast was recorded prior to the time Apple's lawsuit against the NSO group was publicly reported. David, what is spyware and why do you believe we have a global spyware crisis?
0: So spyware is, um, is many things, but the, the kind of spyware that I think the international community has become sort of most focused on over the last several months, if not several years, has been the kind of software or malware that can surreptitiously be used by a government or by others to intrude upon your your personal device, your computer, your laptop, your desktop, your tablet, whatever it may be, and get access to the entirety of your your digital life. That's that's essentially what we're seeing when we see spyware today.
1: Now, there are a number of private companies that make and market this spyware. Uh, One that has been in the news lately is the NSO Group, and specifically it's Pegasus spyware, what do companies like the NSO Group represent that their surveillance products are intended to do?
0: Yeah, that's a really good place to start the conversation about surveillance because NSO Group, which as you point out, is not the only organization, it's not the only company that provides surveillance technologies. And it's not the only kind of surveillance technology that's out there. But most of these companies, I would say the vast, vast majority of them present themselves as providing tools for counterterrorism, for criminal investigation, for, you know, essentially the state's protection, which, you know, is a duty to protect the the rights of its citizens to protect them against violent crime, to protect them against terrorism and so forth. That's what they're presenting. That is their argument. If you go and look at their you know, extensive marketing materials, that's what you'll see that they say. They say they are providing tools to counter crime and terrorism.
1: We've certainly seen some examples of where these surveillance products are being used by government's beyond the stated objectives of investigating and preventing terrorism and serious crime. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. I mean, definitely. So, you know, one of the problems with, um, you know, with sort of thinking about and really thinking about solutions to the private surveillance industry is, you know, on the one hand, You know, NSO Group is not alone. It's part of a a pretty vast industry of companies that sell surveillance technologies. And, you know, it's extremely opaque. So it's difficult to know, for example, you know, who their clients are, what the content of their contracts are, you know, what are the restrictions that they put on the use, what kind of power do they have? over the continued use? Do they service the technology? There are all sorts of questions about the surveillance industry that are really unanswered right now. And so what what we see now basically is what we're learning from the forensic investigations of human rights organizations like Citizen Lab based in Canada or Amnesty Tech, the technology group at Amnesty International, and also some really impressive reporting around the world and what that what that has shown over the last several years but certainly over the last several months has been that at least if we're talking about pegasus but i do think that it's probably tip of the iceberg but with respect to pegasus it's being used by governments in order to target activists and journalists you know the kind of the kind of people who are in professions that are pillars of democratic life and so you know this is the the core problem on the one hand there's this pitch that they're selling this technology they're making it available to states for legitimate purposes and yet we have continued continuing ongoing evidence of the use of these tools you know for entirely illicit anti-democratic anti-human rights purposes and that's that's the basic problem and the question is how do we constrain it
1: so moving to that question about how we constrain it. You've certainly, in your work, talked about the fact that the global spyware industry is operating in an environment that is largely lawless. And in your former role as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, you called for a moratorium on the global sale and transfer of tools of the private surveillance industry until rigorous human rights safeguards are put in place to regulate such practices and guarantee that governments and non-state actors use the tools in legitimate ways. In terms of regulating global spyware, how might we start to think about human rights protections as a foundation for constraining the global sale and transfer of private surveillance tools?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think of the problem as involving two sides, right? I mean, on the one hand, we have a supply problem. You know, we have an industry that is opaque and largely unconstrained, certainly unconstrained by human rights standards in terms of the development and marketing and sale and transfer of the technology and then we have a, a demand problem right so so it's both the supply or the export and it's the end use and so uh, you know i think that as we think about human rights of course you know we would want to start with the use of the technology you know in other words the, you know the fundamental responsibility lies with those governments that are using this technology Illicitly, you know, that are using it, like the United Arab Emirates has been shown to use it uh, in order to to track, you know, dissidents. Or, you know, there's evidence that those around Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist uh, who was murdered a few years ago, that it was used against his circle, the circle of people that he was engaging with uh, at the time that he was that he was killed by the Saudis. So there's the use problem and human rights absolutely speaks to that. But if we're talking, you know, first about the supply problem, you know, there are mechanisms, you know, international tools, export control regimes that deal with the export of technology that has dual use, that has use for, you know, say military, but also civilian purposes. And that's, you know, all well and good, but the standards there tend to be focused on national security. In other words, a government shouldn't permit the export of certain technology, you know, if it's an interference with national security or international security. It doesn't say it shouldn't allow for the export of technology if, you know, the technology will be used for, you know, human rights violations in a domestic context. In one sense, that's a, a key gap that the international community really should address and they should address it by you know essentially saying that this kind of technology and you know footnote it needs to be carefully defined so that it doesn't cover technologies that are you know legitimate and used for the protection of human rights, but define the technology, define the problematic uses of it, and essentially, right into export controls internationally that would then be implemented nationally in terms of you know what what kind of technologies should not be exported and and essentially what the steps should be to identify whether particular technologies you know are are permitted to be exported and transferred.
1: So there's something called the the Vassanar arrangement is that a mechanism or a potential for bringing some of these human rights principles into export controls, with the understanding that it's it's an agreement? You know, it it there's nothing binding about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the Vasinar arrangement is actually a good place to start. And in, so, for a little bit of background, the Vasinar arrangement, as you say, it's a non-binding. Arrangement. It's a, and even calling it an arrangement highlights it's not an international agreement. It's not a treaty, but um, over forty governments, forty states, have gotten together and decided. You know, these are the kinds of rules that we think should apply to the export of technologies, particularly technologies. That have military and civilian uses, so we think of them as dual-use technologies. And the standards there tend to involve national security-oriented kinds of standards. And you know, we could imagine what those look like because, you know, of course, there's lots of technology out there. You know, uh, highly sophisticated digital technology, as an example, that can be used for really important civilian purposes, but might also have a military purpose. So the space that Wassenaar provides is actually useful because it's, it's a space where there's already discussion of technology and discussion of national security and of export controls. And there's already built into it a, essentially a political commitment by all of its participants to you know, implement the export controls that are adopted by by Wassenaar. And by the way, when uh, when the United States, when the Commerce Department just a couple of weeks back issued its blacklisting of the NSO group and another Israeli company and actually a Russian, a couple of Russian companies, when it did that, it actually relied on recently adopted Vassanar export controls. It's just that it identified them as having an impact on the national security of the United States. So, you know, with that in mind, I think there's a lot of room within Vassanar to really be very clear about surveillance technologies, not only that have, you know, a national security use and thus a kind of impact on national security, but also have a potential for abuse of human rights in a domestic sense. And if you build that into Vasanar and then you start to identify, well, what are the technologies that are that are problematic, that are a risk for human rights, you can start to develop a kind of global embrace of certain kinds of export rules that then states would adopt. You know, Israel in the past, for example, even though it's not a party or member of or participant in the, the Vassanar arrangement, it's committed to, to meeting those export control uh, obligations. So I think if, if Vassanar were to evolve in this way, you know, I think we could see it used as a tool to constrain exports around the world, even by governments uh, like Israel that you know, have a real vested interest in the success of its technology industry.
1: So you mentioned a recent action by the Commerce Department that occurred on November 3rd of this year. I want to go back to that. You indicated that they put four entities, two of them being Israeli companies, one of them being the NSO group, on the entities list. In your view, what was the significance of that?
0: I think it was extremely significant. And I mean, significant in a few different ways. The first is just thinking about the technology and the statement that the Commerce Department made when it announced that it was blacklisting these companies. And you know, I'd encourage people to go look at that statement. I mean, essentially, what the Biden administration was saying, because it was clear this wasn't just an agency decision, this was an interagency decision. It was a Biden administration call here. They basically said, This kind of technology is inconsistent with US national security. And I think that's a big deal. That's a big statement. And the question really is whether they will take that that normative statement, right? That that normative statement that says these tools are problematic, but also recognizes that the reporting and the forensic work done by human rights organizations is legitimate. You know, I think it was implicitly a recognition that that kind of information is legit. That, that together, I think, really signals, you know, part of this is my hope, but part of it is, I think, just what we can read from the decision or, or this action is a, um, a kind of statement about unaccountable, lawless spread and use of surveillance technologies So I think as a a normative matter, as a policy statement, it's really important. I think there's another part of it that is somewhat interesting, which is, you know, it's directed against, in part, to Israeli companies. And the fact of the matter is that the government of Israel, I think it's Ministry of Defense in this context, has permitted the export of this technology And the fact that the United States would blacklist two companies that have engaged in business practices, in exports, with the clear knowledge, if not the support of the Israeli government, I think that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's a real, I mean, this administration, like every American administration,s doesn't You know, necessarily want to get into a spat with the government of Israel. But I think that the implicit statement here is to the government of Israel, you know, get your act together. This is inconsistent with our, meaning the Biden administration's attempt to deal with transnational repression. You need to rein companies like this in. So I think both in the sort of multilateral normative sense and in the bilateral sense, there's a lot going on here that is, I think, pretty meaningful
1: it's always been my sense that one of the challenges or difficulties in getting governments to begin to regulate the export of these these private surveillance technologies spyware is that you know when you start pointing your finger at other countries and and their businesses and their surveillance technologies you know do you start bringing a level of scrutiny back on your own practices. But it seems like we've had a an interesting breakthrough here with this particular designation of placing these companies on the entity list. What are your thoughts?
0: I think it's a great a great question and and in fact I was a bit surprised by the Commerce Department decision or the you know the Biden administration decision in part for this reason, and it goes to to this you know if we were talking about surveillance, let's say seven years ago, you know what we'd be talking about would be the revelations of the National Security Agency and the Five Eyes use of of mass interception, bulk collection, and retention of data that was disclosed by Edward Snowden. You know that that kind of you know mass surveillance and and you know really mass surveillance that was conducted in the absence of very clear rules you know that was really the center of our discussion and it wasn't until a few years ago that that discussion moved into the question of targeted surveillance so of course mass surveillance is still an issue but this issue of targeted surveillance has come to the fore and i think The surprising thing to me about the Biden administration's approach is that, you know, once we start to have a conversation about how to restrict targeted surveillance, we will very quickly, I think, once we start to talk about solutions, we'll start to get into discussions about, you know, whether the restrictions that are important for targeted surveillance by the private surveillance industry, you know, the spyware industry whether those also apply to, to governments that have their own, their own technologies that they develop themselves. And you know, so this comes up in, a, in you know, several different ways. Of course, there's the normative question of, you know, as we define the technologies, you know, is it possible to define them in a way that excludes, you know, American or European, you know, governmental tools of, of surveillance? which we shouldn't do, but that will be a part of the debate. The other part is, you know, one of the things we've seen over the last several years is that individuals who are subject to surveillance often don't have any recourse. They don't have a recourse to remedies. They don't have access to justice. And one of the things that, I mean, there are several things that stand in the way of getting a remedy for the harm of targeted surveillance, one of which is oftentimes the victims of surveillance don't know about it, but the other problem is you know, even when you do know about it, if you make an effort to, say, bring a suit against either the company or the government responsible for that surveillance, there are different kind of transnational problems, transnational barriers to that kind of litigation. And just to give you an example, there was a case in which Ethiopia several years ago conducted surveillance, you know, from Ethiopia against an American Ethiopian activist who lived in, and I think still lives in uh, Maryland. And, you know, this this person became kind of alive to the fact that he was under surveillance. Ultimately, he brought a suit against the government of Ethiopia. And He wasn't able to proceed in his suit because of Ethiopia's argument that it enjoyed sovereign immunity in U.S. courts, and the U.S. courts accepted that argument. So, if we if we kind of take that to the next level and imagine, you know, one tool to allow individuals to get remedy would be to, you know, carve out sovereign immunity. In other words, disallow sovereign immunity claims you know, in, in American courts, that's going to have an effect over time on, you know, the ability of individuals around the world to bring suits against the United States for its surveillance practices. So that's a, you know, I apologize. That's kind of a long answer to a, a sort of a specific way of thinking about how there needs to be an approach taken against surveillance and targeted surveillance. But There will be issues that come up where the U.S. is probably going to say and other countries are probably going to say, you know, whoa, you know, that that's going to come back and bite us and we're not going to go down that road. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue.
1: Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com For most of this discussion, we have been talking about ways that nation states might regulate the spyware market through international agreements, through their their own domestic legislation and processes. But of course, you know, the private surveillance companies are a player in all of this. Should we have any expectation that the private sector would implement meaning meaningful forms of self-regulation for the purpose of respecting human rights principles?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, it's funny you ask it that way, because that's where I started. I mean, I, I, when I was thinking early on about the private surveillance industry, you know, there, there are these principles that have been adopted by the UN's Human Rights Council, which is you know, the central human rights body in the UN system. And they're they're called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And these principles say, on the one hand, states have obligations because, of course, human rights law speaks to states. It's negotiated by and adopted by states. And there are obligations that states have to protect human rights under human rights law. And those those are legal obligations. But those don't apply directly to companies. So the guiding principle said, look, because individuals enjoy human rights, companies have a responsibility to respect those human rights. It doesn't say obligation, but it says a responsibility. And, and these guiding principles go through the kinds of steps that companies should take as, as a matter of, as you put it, self-regulation. They should adopt human rights policies where so that wherever they have an impact on human rights they have tools to address them they should adopt human rights due diligence you know undertake impact assessments so that they know when they're creating a product developing a product when they're selling it when they're they're transferring it when they're servicing it as is likely the case here they have the tools in order to assess whether they're actually you know creating human rights harms and they should have remedies and and so forth the problem is that all of this requires some oversight. And that's, that's what we've seen over the last couple of years, which is, for example, the NSO group adopted a human rights policy. You know, all credit to them for adopting a human rights policy. But that policy, you know, which asserts that in their client relationships, in their transfers, and so forth, that they will adhere to human rights standards, it's not subject to any transparency. Any oversight, any indication that a violation of those standards leads to any, you know, meaningful reform or remedy, and so, you know, while I think it's it's absolutely essential for companies to adopt human rights policies and human rights approaches, you know, particularly in this industry, you know, but across the industries of technology that have an impact on human rights. I think we've increasingly seen that that's not enough, that there needs to be a kind of overlay to that. There needs to be oversight. There needs to be a sense that the public or at least governments responsible for export control regulations have insight into what the companies are doing and the tools to enforce those kinds of human rights policies. And they can do that by requiring... Companies in their jurisdiction to adopt human rights uh, standards, policies, impact assessment, and so forth. They haven't done that, but I, I think we have the tools to make that happen.
1: So I have to say I'm somewhat skeptical of, of the idea that you know we can at all rely on companies that make money producing surveillance tools self regulating themselves. I mean David, you've laid out what your concerns are, you know, why it is challenging due to lack of oversight and transparency. I mean, do do you think there is a way forward on that particular front?
0: I mean, I'm I'm with you in terms of, you know, skepticism about self-regulation. I you know, I don't think that that is the answer. It's part of the answer in the sense that no matter, you know, what happens in terms of, you know, government regulation of export controls and so forth, whatever is decided there, companies themselves are still going to have to have compliance mechanisms. They're, they're still going to have to have tools in order to assess, you know, whether their, their products uh, have an impact on human rights and how they address them how they prevent those impacts and how they you know mitigate those impacts and how they remedy them that's still going to have to exist i mean companies in all areas have to operate in the shadow of government regulation because you know they don't want to be subject to you know an enforcement action by the state so they're still going to have to do that they're still going to have to have you know, have mechanisms for self-regulation. It's just that at this point, as we've seen the technology develop, and there will be other technologies that do not just what NSO Group is able to do, but similar, maybe, you know, more intrusive kinds of technologies will develop, you know, for sure they will over time, particularly as, you know, as the platforms for our communications change, so will the efforts to, you know, to surveil it so there's just going to be a need for there to be both company policies that could be required by the state subject to regular audit and so forth and there's going to have to be state regulation on the export side you know that is that is rigorous and applies to the and constrains the ability of companies to transfer this kind of technology I mean, there's another element here, of course, which is that, you know, governments like say that aren't using the technology or governments that are maybe the host countries for, you know, parts of the industry, for companies that are involved in this space. They're going to need to play a role in ensuring that other governments also are not using these tools to abuse fundamental human rights. They need to be involved in kind of the normative development. So that goes to things like, you know, the Vassanar arrangement that we were talking about before. It goes to, you know, highlighting and condemning illicit uses of surveillance technologies in places like the Human Rights Council and the UN General Assembly, you know, making this a bilateral issue that governments raise with with other governments that are accused of the abuse of these tools. You know, there, there are a number of things that need to take place for this particular kind of technology to be constrained.
1: So given all that we've talked about, what is your prescription for the, the next steps forward? What do you think, you know, could be accomplished in the near term, you know, versus the very far term?
0: Yeah, I think over the near term, I think the, the U.S. You know, blacklisting recently gives us a good opportunity and, you know, the upcoming Summit for democracies that, uh, or for Democracy that the Biden administration is hosting, you know, provides actually a very near term opportunity for not just a statement about the concerns around the private surveillance industry, but I think, honestly, a move towards a moratorium on the transfer of this technology. And, you know, a moratorium does not mean a permanent ban you know a moratorium means at least a temporary cessation of the export of these tools cessation of the servicing and development of these tools while governments working with civil society figure out what is the appropriate regulatory regime here or what are the the appropriate regulatory regimes cuz some of it will be international some will some will be national i think that's that's the near-term step. You know, that's that's where I think the action should be focused. That gives you space to develop a long-term approach to regulation of the industry and also gives you space, gives governments and civil society space to think about what is likely to develop over time. What's the trajectory of these technologies? And can we create, you know, a set of export rules and expectations? That apply not only to you know the NSO groups of the present world of our contemporary space, but also can be applied in the future as new entrants into this surveillance market sort of show themselves. That's that's the long term, but I think the near term is is moratorium to give that that kind of long-term space for that development.
1: I want to touch upon one thing that you said about working with civil society groups. I think that civil society has played an enormous and critical role of bringing the global spyware problem to light. Can you talk a little bit about that and and perhaps even mention the specific kind of work that some groups have done?
0: Yeah, there's been some amazing reporting in this space. And I think one of the you know, one of the interesting things about the reporting and really valuable lessons from the reporting is that you've seen several key reporters develop, you know, really good relationships with those parts of civil society that have been doing the forensic work in this space. They've been careful about their reporting. And, you know, you can go back, you know, to reporting, you know, particularly by outlets like The Guardian, and um, Financial Times, you know, also the New York Times, you know, they've been doing for several years, some really great reporting in this space, but they've really developed relationships with those who are doing the forensic work. So, so the kind of reporting that we get is really pretty solidly based not on just supposition or a fear, but is based on actual evidence of the use of these, uh, of these tools. So that I think is is something that we should really, you know, reflect on and and you know uh, applaud those reporters who've developed those relationships. I think the the thing that we've seen over the last, you know, particularly over the summer, is a kind of coordination. You know, there it's the consortium of journalists under the umbrella of Forbidden Stories that has been also you know pretty remarkable. You know, oftentimes. Uh, news outlets are are in a competitive mode, right? You know, everybody wants to scoop everybody else. and that's that tends to work pretty well for you know for the, for an audience because there's a competition to get information to the public. So that's all great. This consortium has shown a different kind of style and a different approach, which is has involved, I think twelve or so, different media outlets around the world. So to back up a little bit, Forbidden Stories got access to a database of something like 50,000 phone numbers that were said to be a part of a, a kind of a pool of phone numbers that were candidates for being targeted by Pegasus spyware. So they didn't have evidence that all fifty thousand numbers or whatever the number is were actually targeted, but you know they had this this database, this pool of numbers, and working with uh forensic investigators from human rights organizations like Amnesty Tech and Citizen Lab, they were able to identify quite a number of numbers associated with actual devices that were uh, intruded upon, that were subject to Pegasus malware, that were subject to either attempts or actual infection by by Pegasus. What was really great about this consortium is that it allowed for the reporting to be global. So it really said, look, we have reporters and we have numbers in India. And this became a huge scandal in India when you know, the, the numbers of individuals, you know, of reporters, of opposition politicians and so forth were seen in, in India. This became a big deal. And the reporting was really meaningful because it led to, you know, several individuals within India bringing suit against the government in the Indian Supreme Court. They had a, a process that they could do that. And the Indian Supreme Court just a few weeks ago made a decision that it was actually going to conduct an investigation. It created a a committee to do this investigation to determine whether the government was, you know, violating Indian law in the use of surveillance technologies, in particular in the use of Pegasus, against uh, Indian nationals. So, you know, there was this consortium, there's been years of reporting, there's been human rights work, connected to identifying individuals who may have been subject to the surveillance ultimately led to you know on the one hand you know the commerce department decision in the united states on the other this supreme court outcome in india i think it's it's actually a positive story of how public interest journalism can have a real impact on policy and law you know certainly in democracies really i think something to applaud
1: I agree with you. I, I think it is a very positive story. I do worry or, or have concerns if this is the the only way we have the relevant facts come to light to lead to policy. And I and I I think your point about, you know, needing more oversight and more transparency would Partner well with all of the incredible investigative work that that has been done over the years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think, I think what we need, you know, the reporting is essential. It's an example of you know the power of journalism in in democratic societies. But at the end of the day, that needs to be translated into actual government policy. I I have some hope that. I mean, there are people in Congress who are you know, really concerned about surveillance technologies, their spread, their use for you know, very deeply problematic human rights violations. I kind of imagine that over the course of 2022, we'll start to see hearings on this. And I think that's, the, that's part of the step forward. You know, it's both the executive branch doing its work to investigate, which it clearly did in the commerce interagency outcome. It's taking that internationally and saying, look, this can't be done just on a bilateral basis, country by country. We need to have global norms, global rules, rules of the road for this as we move forward, or, or we're going to see really massive interference with human rights without any law or control. And you know then sort of a feedback into national implementation around the world. I think we see the start of that happening. I'm I'm actually a bit hopeful, but I also see the barriers that clearly are out there which, you know, you've identified in your questions some of, you know, what those barriers might look like.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that you are hopeful and uh, that 2022 could bring some very interesting scrutiny and hearings on these issues is there anything else we have to look forward to in 2022 do you think on regulating the global surveillance spyware market
0: oh there's always something to look forward to whether it's you know just uh, looking you know reading about new bad news or or something else i mean i think that there is going to be some movement here i mean i think the biden administration has made clear you know in the commerce decision I also think that, you know, one of the things that happened in the last couple of weeks as well was that the uh, a Ninth Circuit panel in the federal courts in California enabled WhatsApp and Facebook's lawsuit against the NSO Group to move forward. So we haven't we haven't talked about this, but WhatsApp sued the NSO Group because it found that NSO Group had used WhatsApp as a vector to get. Pegasus spyware onto individual users' uh, phones, and so um, this was a you know violation, not only of like in WhatsApp's uh, view, not only of, of U.S. law, but also you know its its terms of service. And so WhatsApp has has sued NSO Group, and the interesting thing is, the NSO Group said, "Look, governments are using our tools, so we should be able to claim." sovereign immunity, you know, that set of principles that I, I mentioned earlier, and the Ninth Circuit said, no, that, you know, sovereign immunity doesn't apply to private actors like you. So what this all means is that, of course, it's going to be difficult, but we move to a new phase in which WhatsApp can start demanding discovery from NSO Group. And so I think that there's a lot to, you know, if we want to say look forward to, there's a, there's a lot of, of data a lot of information that is likely to break free over the coming year. And, you know, for my part, I'll be watching that pretty closely.
1: David, I want to thank you for joining us today. You've given us some very important things to look out for in in this space. And your, your insight and your work on these issues is very inspiring. So thank you.
0: Great, thanks a lot, Stephanie. It's always great to to talk to friends at Lawfare.
1: The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com/lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And if you're feeling inspired, you can get Lawfare merch at lawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer for this week was Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.